It is really good to be together this morning. Like Steve said, we are diving into week four of the series that we've been calling We Are. And so far, I am loving this series. And today, I think, will be another challenge for us. We are looking at one of my very favorite Jesus stories in the entire Bible today. Uh, not to set the bar too high for you, but it's, it's going to be a good day. Uh, Matthew chapter 15. Just this morning, because this is how things sometimes go, we had some technical difficulties, and all of the slides I was going to put on the screen were corrupted, and so I had to go and try and retrieve them, and that was unsuccessful. And so we're going to do it the old-fashioned way today, right in the Scriptures. Maybe this is the Lord's will for us this morning. If you brought your Bible, pull it out. If you didn't, grab one in the pew rack in front of you and turn to Matthew chapter 15. I had the page number on the screen, and now I'm going to have to look. It's page 796, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. As you turn there, and as you find your, your way, um, before we dive in, I want to I share a quick story that I, I reread this week from one of my favorite authors and pastors, a guy by the name of John Ortberg, who really blessed me and helped frame this sermon uh, for me a lot this morning. He writes this. A teacher at a university was giving a test on ornithology, the study of birds. And this particular teacher was, was famous for giving exams that were extremely difficult. And one of his students, who had been studying diligently for this test, pulling all-nighters, she walks into the, the exam only to discover that there are no essay questions, there are no multiple-choice questions, there are just pictures Pictures of 25 birds posted around the walls of the room. But these pictures are only of the birds' feet. No feathers, no wings, no colors or beaks, just feet. And the test is they have to identify 25 species of birds by simply looking at the feet. And this girl, this student, goes nuts. She says, that's it. This test is impossible. It's unrealistic. No one can do this. I refuse to take this test. Well, the teacher says, if you don't take the test, I'll flunk you. She says, fine. Go ahead and flunk me. The teacher says, done. You flunk. What's your name? She pauses for just a second, then pulls her pants up to her knees and says, I don't know. You tell me. Now, that was mostly just for fun, but here's how it ties in this morning. In the passage that we will look at today, Jesus is giving a test of his own. He's giving a test to his disciples and subsequently to you and to me. And as he does, this morning we get to see the absolute brilliance of Jesus' teaching because he knows, he knows great teachers don't just lecture. Great teachers don't just dispense information. Great teachers know that truth is most powerful when people have to work to discover it, when they have to wrestle with it, when tension is created. Jesus, my dear friends, is the master of what one New Testament scholar calls deliberately induced frustration. Deliberately induced frustration. He does this all the time. He tells his followers to go feed a crowd that they can't feed. Not enough food. 
He tells his followers to, to drive out a spirit that they cannot drive out or put him in a boat in the middle of the storm. He'll put him in the boat on a shore against a, a strong headwind and he'll say, now try to get to the other side. Deliberately induced frustration in the hands of a great teacher is a powerful, powerful tool. And in this passage, Jesus is going to create some tension for his disciples in order to teach them about who he came to embrace and how we are to engage people in this world as his followers. Matthew chapter 15, we'll start in verse 21. Leaving that place... Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. In our story today, Jesus and his disciples travel north out of Israel to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's two Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. I had a really nice map for you. But if you looked at a map, you would see that this is the modern uh, region of southern Lebanon. And Matthew tells us this. He tells us they go to this area because he wants us to know that we are now in a region full of people who are despised by the Jews, who his disciples do not care for. The Israelites thought of these people as the lowest scum on the face of this earth. And not only are they in this region, but now the woman who approaches is a Canaanite And friends, the Canaanites are like the original enemies of the Jews in the Old Testament. Look it up. Read about them. They're not fast friends. So in the minds of the disciples, this lady represents a group of people who are vile and sinful and wretched. This is the most spiritually depraved and degraded kind of person they know. That's who approaches. That's who comes up to Jesus. And it's in this tension and in the midst of this frustration that Jesus will offer some instruction, some critical teaching to his followers. She addresses Jesus with the traditional cry of a beggar, have mercy on me. But she adds to her cry a title, son of David. This means She must know something about Judaism. Perhaps even she knows something about Jesus because she also calls him Lord. You see, her approaching posture is deeply respectful. But friends, you must understand, this is a bold, bold move by this woman. She's a Phoenician Gentile, not a Jew. A pagan Canaanite, not a God worshiper. A woman, not a man. Her daughter has an unclean spirit, and this means that she's unclean. In every way, she is disqualified from approaching a Jewish rabbi. This is a big no-no. And yet she comes, crying out. And, And the Greek is written here in a way that tells us that she just keeps crying out, just keeps on crying out over and over again, begging and pleading Jesus for help on behalf of her little girl. Now listen to this, verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. Jesus did not answer a word. 
How many of you think Jesus seems just a little bit rude here? How many think, you know, I know I'm not supposed to say this, especially in church, but Jesus kind of seems to treat this woman as a second-class citizen. This woman's daughter is suffering terribly, so she appeals to Jesus with humility and reverence, and he acts like he doesn't even hear her. He responds with silence, with what looks like indifference and rejection. And you notice that Matthew does not try to hide this from us. In fact, he deliberately draws our attention to it. Why? Because he wants us to wrestle with it too. Just like the disciples have to. You see, it's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, how do you think I should treat this woman? Do you think it's okay for me to completely ignore her? Jesus did not answer a word. He deliberately discounts her and he watches his disciples to see what they will do. Do they get it? Do they understand? Do they yet comprehend what he and his kingdom are really all about? Their response gives him his his answer. Send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Send her away. It's a little reminiscent, isn't it, of another story in the Gospels when some children try to come see Jesus. Remember what happens? Remember the disciples' response then? The Bible tells us they rebuked the children You see, they thought they knew the kind of people Jesus did and did not have time for. They were wrong then, and we'll find out that they are wrong now. Here's another thing to point out. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. After who? Because I thought she was crying out after Jesus, but suddenly the disciples have decided to make themselves into a little exclusive religious group. They've decided to include themselves with Jesus. She keeps crying out after us. You see, friends, this whole us versus them thing, because of sin, because of the fall, it's been insidiously woven into the human race into the disciples, and into you and me. Social science tells us that we are so tempted to divvy people up into us and them that we will even do it when it makes no sense at all. In one particular study, boys were put in two different groups based solely on a random flip of a coin. But what they discovered was that once separated, the boys in both groups, in each group, decided quickly that their group had better personalities and were smarter than the boys in the other group. We're the us. They're the them. Now, some of you in this room are not boys. You're women. You're girls. And you're thinking, of course boys would do this. Women would never do such a thing. And I'm here to tell you that women are actually worse. And I say that based on no evidence at all, but just because I'm a boy. (laughs) Here's the point. 
Jesus knows our tendency to do this, but he did not come to be one more thing around which we divvy people up into us versus them. He did not come to be one more thing around which we divvy people up into us versus them. Jesus knows that it's the will of his Father for everyone to be in us, but his disciples, they still haven't caught on. So now he'll increase the tension. He'll turn it up even more. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, he says. Now, this is in direct contradiction to what Jesus says in so many other places. In fact, We see Jesus doing the exact opposite. He engages a Roman centurion, a Samaritan woman. In Matthew chapter 8, he says, many will enter the kingdom from the east and the west. And that phrase referred to Gentiles, people outside of Israel coming into his kingdom. But here in this moment, he makes a statement to raise the tension in their minds and hearts. It's like he's goading them on. He says to them, Of course I'll get rid of her. I was sent to Israel. You guys are God's favorites. You're the ones that he really loves. I've got no time for Gentile, female, second-rate riffraff. Not people like this lady, right? Verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. The word here for knelt is proskuneo, and it describes a person who lies prostrate on the ground. So get this picture. This woman goes on her face in the dirt in order to beg Jesus to help her suffering little girl. And the disciples, they're watching this whole thing go down. This is the cry of a desperate mother for her beloved daughter who is in physical and spiritual agony. But still, but still, not a single one of them says a word. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, this is Jesus, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, most dogs in the Middle East were despised animals. They were like the rats of our day, at least before Ratatouille. (laughs) And it was real common for the Jews to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. It was their way of saying they're unclean, they're unloved, they are people despised by us and by our God. Think for just a minute about slang words in our culture that are used to categorize and degrade people. Think of some real-time examples. Just let them run through your mind right now. I won't say them in church. Got some of those in your head? This is the first century version of that. So who are the children? The children of the Jews. The children is Israel. The children of the disciples. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. The Canaanites. This woman. But one thing very noticeable here in this statement, Jesus doesn't use the typical word for dogs, most often associated with Gentiles. You see, in Greek, there were two words for dogs. The one that was most often used described street dogs who were scavengers and garbage eaters, the rats. 
But then there was another word that described the loved dogs who were kept as pets. Some of you have one or more of those. That's the word Jesus uses here. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And that still may seem like an insult to us, but Jesus is now beginning to offer his disciples a clue, a chance, an opportunity to see that he does not see this woman the way they have been taught to see her. Their theology, their culture tells them that this woman is a mangy, scroungy, garbage-eating rat who should be shunned and excluded and utterly turned away. But Jesus here wants to know if they can see beyond that, if they can see beyond the categories that they've been taught to put her in. Jesus is wondering, can they see her? Through my eyes, can they see her as a person, as a parent, as a mother, desperately crying out on behalf of her daughter? You see, friends, this story is amazing because in it, Jesus is striking at beliefs and prejudices and religious hierarchy that runs so deep inside of people that it doesn't come out all at once. Junk concerning who counts and who doesn't. Who's on top and who's on bottom? Who's in? Who's out? Who's us? Who's them? And it won't happen today. But in this passage, a seed gets planted that the disciples will not fully harvest until much later in the book of Acts when Peter sees the Holy Spirit fall on a Gentile named Cornelius and he says this, I now realize How true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Every tribe, every color, every gender, every form of ability and disability, every socioeconomic class, every level of education, every background, every past, every sin temptation, every story, Jesus engages and loves them all. And in Acts Peter says, I finally get it. But they don't get it today. None of them, not one, speaks up in defense of this woman. Today, the disciples fail their test. Friends, I think that we are in a test much like this right now. I think our world is in this test. I think our nation is is facing this test. I think our church and many of us in this room are facing a test like this right now. Do we really believe that all men and women are created equal? Do we believe that Jesus offers his saving grace to all people That he longs for all to be saved. Do we believe that the kingdom of God is bigger and greater and stronger than all the categories that want to divide us into us versus them? It's easy to say yes. But you know what strikes me about the disciples in this story? It's not about what they do that indicts them. It's what they don't do. It's not about what they say. It's what they don't say. 
You see, one thing I think this story teaches us is that to be passive in the face of injustice is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of his kingdom. It is not who we are called to be. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. They don't say a word. Not a single response from any one of them. But friends, I'll tell you who does respond. This woman and her response is unbelievable. Yes, it is, Lord. Notice that's the third time she's called him Lord in this story. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see, this woman seems to know something about Jesus that the disciples still have managed to miss. This woman seems to know and understand that he does love her, that he does see her, and that even just a crumb of love and grace and hope from him is enough to fill her soul and utterly heal her daughter. This woman knows who Jesus is. Come on, Jesus, I know you see me, and all I need is a little crumb, just a little morsel. Friends, let me just stop for a moment and say a word to some of you in here who feel a lot like this woman. Maybe you feel a second, like a second-class citizen. Maybe like you're second-rate somehow. Maybe you've even felt that way in the Christian community. Maybe even in the church. Maybe even in this very church. Maybe it was even a pastor who made you feel that way. Maybe it was even me. But in spite of that, you're here. You're here seeking and worshiping God. And these next words, these are words for you. Jesus spoke them to this woman. He also spoke them for his disciples who still had a thing or two to learn about who his kingdom was truly for. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Actually, in the Greek, it says, Oh, woman. Oh, woman, because that's what you say when your heart is drawn to somebody. Oh, woman, oh, you nailed it. Oh, you got it. Oh, you understand how my kingdom works in ways these disciples of mine still have yet to learn. Oh, woman, you have great faith. That word great is the word mega. You have mega faith. You see, Jesus was testing his disciples here, but this woman, she's the one who turns out to be the star student. This broken, begging Canaanite woman. She's the class valedictorian. She's the example of having great faith, not the disciples. In fact, just one chapter, less than one chapter back, when Peter flunked the walking on water test, remember this? What did Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. You see, as it turns out, it was the disciples who had a thing or two to learn from her. And friends, this leads me to our distinctive for this morning. We are, we must be and continue by the power of the Holy Spirit in us to become people who engage 
inclusively. Engage inclusively. Why? Because we grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. Friends, our calling here, our mission is nothing less than to become like Jesus and to make him known in the world, to engage the world the way he engaged the world, to engage people the way he engaged people, tax collectors and fishermen, Galileans and Samaritans, men and women, children and Pharisees. Oh, how Jesus valued the Marys and the Marthas. How he looked into the eyes of people on the far edges of society and embraced them all, every single one of them. They all got his time. They all got his gaze. They all got his attention. You see, for Jesus, it didn't matter if you were a ruler or a beggar, educated or uneducated, a harlot or a hero. Jesus, as it says in Matthew 22, was not swayed by appearances. Friends, we have chosen this distinctive for our church because in our day, just like in Jesus' day, there are forces that want to convince us to exclude, not include, to disengage rather than engage. And friends, that's why we picked the word engage. Because it's not a passive word. It's an assertive word. It's a word that says, we will be proactive. We will go out. We will seek, just like Jesus did. He chooses to take his disciples up north to this region. He calls them to sail across the lake into foreign territory. He decides, we're not going to go the long way around. We're traveling right through Samaria. He initiates interactions with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Friends, this is very important when it comes to engaging people different than you. You may have to work at it. You may have to be proactive and go out of your way. Why? Because the normal, often the normal patterns of our lives do not cause us to intersect with people who are not a lot like us. I walk around my neighborhood and there's lots of people like me. I go to work, lots of people like me. I come to church, lots of people like me. I stand on the sidelines at my kids' and grandkids' games, lots of people like me. Often, friends, there are very strong social and cultural forces at work to keep you within your tribe. To keep you surrounded with people your same age, your same gender, Your same color, your same intelligence, your same earning potential. But if we're honest, if we want to get really honest today, it's church, we should. I think we have to start to see that the forces that separate and divide us are not just external, they're internal as well. Some of those forces aren't just out there, they're right in here, they're in us, they live in me. A couple of weeks ago, I flew home for a college reunion, and for the first leg of my flight, I flew to Las Vegas, and I was flying southwest, and southwest, as you may know, does not have assigned seats, so they employ a very prejudiced system where organized planner-type people are given seat preference over more free-spirited, less legalistic people like me. So by the time I check in for my flight, my boarding number is like C42, which really means one thing. 
I'm going to be sitting in the middle seat. Plus, as we're preparing to board the plane, the woman comes over the loudspeaker and announces, every single seat in our, on our flight will be taken today. And so with all this information, I decide I'm not even going to try for a window or for an aisle. I'm just taking the very first center seat that looks good at the front of the plane so I can get off as fast as I possibly can when this flight is over. So I walk the ramp, duck under the door to get into the plane, say hi to the flight attendant, turn the corner, and start instantly scanning for seats. Right away, I see one between two people who are both a lot different than me on multiple levels. And my first instinct was not that one. Not that one. Just that fast. Didn't even have to think about it. Didn't even have to try. Not that one. Why? Because subconsciously, in a very deep down, subtle, but powerful way, I'm more comfortable with people like me. Now here's where our sermon today matters. That was my first thought. But what do you think my second thought was? I've been preparing for these sermons weeks in advance. And so the thing that went running through my mind instantly right after not that one was this. We grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. So I said, can I sit there? And I sat down. I proceeded to have a delightful hour or so long conversation with two wonderful people who told me all about their lives. And one showed me pictures of her grandkids. And the Spirit of God just kept whispering to me throughout that entire flight, there's still work to do, Dave. Not just out there, but right in here. And I'm not done with you yet. Let me tell you another story. This one won't sound as bad, but maybe it's worse. For this series, I've asked all of you to go th through it in a group, not just to come and listen on Sundays, but to gather with other Jesus followers and to talk and discuss and to challenge one another to go deeper and to really begin to live and adopt these distinctives into your lives. Because when they go into your life, they go into our life, and then our church starts to look this way. Well, because I've asked you to do it, Amy and I are doing the same. I try never to ask you to do things that I'm not willing to do. I'm not 100% on that, but I try. So we've asked some people to do a group with us at our house for seven weeks. We meet on Sunday nights. I go home and sleep, then I get up, help my wife clean the house, and then we have people over. And I remember week one, everyone showed up. We had some food and some drink, and there was conversation and a few introductions. And then we sat in our living room, the living room of my home, and we talked about love extravagantly. That was week one. And it was a really good, open, wonderful conversation. Got a few co compliments on my sermon even, which just made my night. And then we got into smaller groups and prayed for one another and shared needs and struggles in ways that we could encourage each other. And when everyone left, I looked at Amy and said, wow, that was great. What a good start to our seven weeks together. 
And then I started thinking about the coming weeks and the things that we would be getting into as a group. And when I thought about this week, this week we're on today, the Holy Spirit revealed something to me I had not even considered. All the people in your group look pretty similar, Dave. All the people in your group look a lot like you. Middle-aged, married, white, upper-middle-class couples with two or more kids. Wow. You see, I wasn't trying to be exclusive. I wasn't shooting for a homogenous group. It just happened. And I love the people in our group. And some of you might be saying, what's wrong with that? And my loving, challenging, pastoral, self-convicted as well answer is this. I think God wants more for us. Hear me clearly. I think God wants more for us. He wants more from us. But mostly I think he wants more for us. Friends, the scriptures challenge and offer us an opportunity to grow and reflect his heart. God's heart by embracing people different than ourselves. And maybe this is why Jesus, when he was picking his core group, invited zealots and tax collectors, people with radically different political perspectives. Maybe this is why Paul, when he wrote to the Colossians, said, Here, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Maybe this is why when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, we're told Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, I can't say that one, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, they were all there for the big launch Maybe this is Jesus saying, yeah, church, let's get this thing going. And now you go out into the world and engage inclusively. Why? Because you'll grow and you'll reflect God's heart when you embrace people different than yourselves. You see, friends, as a people who are becoming like Jesus and making him known, we must engage the world this way. Not only... Because he engaged others this way, but because this is at the very core of how he engages us. His whole arrival, his coming, his purpose in showing up on this planet was that you and I might get included. Included in relationship, included in love, included in truth, included in redemption and reconciliation. And he was so committed to including you and me that he willingly went to the cross, suffered, died, gave his life, took on death, defeated the grave. Why? That you and I might be included in life with God now and forever. See, friends, it's at the very heart of who we are. People who've been included even when we were different while we were yet sinners while we were yet alienated when we didn't think right act right behave right do right look right he came and he died for us 
Friends, that's why every single week we share this meal, to remember and declare that we have been included, but not just to remember, but to be renewed in that remembrance, to be restored in that declaration, to be re-energized now that we might go out into the world to be people who include. You see, we remember our inclusion so that we can be includers. That's our call. That's our vision. That's the purpose of the church. To engage inclusively. Because we grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. So come. Come to the table this morning when you're ready. The worship team's going to come up, they're going to play. We do this every week, but do not miss the significance of it. Do not miss the gravity of this moment, the weight of this declaration, the implications this meal holds for me and you and us and our church in this world, that we'd go out with arms open wide for people that the world would say we should not associate with, we should not love, we should not embrace, we should not befriend, we should not sit next to on a plane. That's the world, but that's not us. It's not who we are. We're the people of this meal. People who have been so radically included that God gave his son for us. So this morning, my one challenge for you is this. When you're ready, you come to the table, you remember what it feels like to be included with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit for all eternity. The tables are open. Receive the elements on your own when you're ready. Father, this morning, I pray that you would embed this truth into our hearts, that you would push it down into our thinking, into our feeling, that we would wrestle with this, Lord, that we would see the places where we are resistant, where we still have to grow and see the way your disciples still had to grow and see. Do that in us today, Lord. May we feel the weight of your inclusion for us. May that press in on our hearts in a way that's unavoidably changing for us. We need you to do this in us, Lord. We're longing for it. We want to be your church, your people, becoming like you and making you known. That's our prayer, Jesus. And we pray it in your name. Amen.